Well, what do you think would happen if it was announced this afternoon that on Wednesday this week, which apparently is a special day of some sort, uh, on Wednesday this week, the Queen is coming to town. In fact, she's coming to Ingleburn. She wants to do Christmas with us in this church. Uh, would that be pretty exciting? Uh, would it be pretty frightening? Uh, would it be boring? Would you care? Uh, I, I reckon, uh, well, if her special ambassador came and announced that that was so, uh, and that she was coming to church here on Christmas morning, and all the heads of state were going to be with her, uh, there'd be a ticker tape parade down Cumberland Road and uh, red carpet laid out here. How do you feel about it? I guess it would depend on who you were. Uh, maybe you'd be excited that we've got a celebrity in town, someone who's nearly as important as, uh, well, no, sorry, she's more important than firefighters even. Um, <coughs> uh, maybe you'd be bored and be thinking, oh, okay, why are we doing this? Uh, what do we need with Queens anyway? Maybe, maybe you'd think it was a great inconvenience. I mean, you might have to park up at Chester Road uh, to get here that morning uh, or even further away. Uh, uh, maybe there'd be confusion. You know, where am I going to sit? Is the Queen going to sit in my seat? Am I, what am I going to do? Uh, we're all creatures of habit. Um, would there be confusion? Why would she come here? I think for many there'd be curiosity. For me personally, I'd be in panic. That's what I'd feel. Uh, uh, the security, the bomb sweeps, uh, all the stuff that would have to be done. We'd probably have to get uh, the rest of the graffiti off the wall over here. Uh, quick smart. Uh, you know, so that we'd want, you know, the extra cleaners to come into the place with pristine. Uh, maybe we might even cancel Christmas Eve services, services so that none of those rotters can spoil the place, uh, for the Queen's visit, uh, the next day. We'd have to break out the fine china that we've been using. It's in storage from all the, uh, ladies after uh, high teas. They're in storage somewhere. We'd have to wash them out. Um, we'd have to get, Val Woodhouse and Porter, Pat Rafferty and Pauline Brown together to come up with the best morning tea we've ever put on, probably. Uh, they could cancel their Christmas plans because the Queen's coming. Sorry, uh, you're on. Um, and they'd cater up a storm, I bet. And Beryl with her pikelets, of course, uh, would be there. Um, but what would I preach on? Um, should I cancel whatever it has, was that I planned to preach on on Christmas morning. Uh, a friend of mine was involved in the last visit of the Queen to Australia and had to preach at the church service she attended at St Andrew's Cathedral. Uh, and it was ordained beforehand, he was told he would speak on the health and vitality of the Commonwealth. Uh, what if I was told to do that? Uh, I know nothing about the health and vitality of the Commonwealth, so I'd be making it up. Or would I say the health and the vitality of the Commonwealth is such that they need to hear what I was going to preach on this morning anyway? <laughs> uh, would I just say, you know what? We'll go with the lectionary today. Uh, the lectionary, if uh, ever you're wondering, is a, a calendar of readings for church services for every day. Uh, it's a three-year cycle, and uh, I just say, well, sorry, 
the lectionary trumps you and I'm preaching. In fact, I happen to be preaching on the lectionary reading today. I had a spare week and thought, what do we do? Well, it's Advent 4a today. Uh, and so Romans 1, 1 to 7 is from Advent 4a. Um, should you just refuse the Queen and her ambassador and do whatever you're going to do? It is Christmas after all, and we've just worked out Jesus trumps the Queen. Uh, would I really amp it up and let her have it with the gospel and all her functionaries? Especially since the gospel itself is the declaration that even the Queen of England has a king and she must bow the knee before him. That's the gospel. That's the heart of it. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is king. He is the master. And I want to show you that from this lectionary reading for uh, the fourth week in Advent on year A. There you go, from Romans 1, 1 to 7. Uh, it's the introduction of what I think is the deepest and most profound theological book of the Bible, which sets out the gospel in its clearest and starkest terms. And it works from first principles and it teases out all kinds of implications of the gospel and answers all kinds of questions that people might respond to about the gospel. It's a great book. But it's written by a man named Paul. He describes himself here in the first sentence as a servant of Christ. But he's not just any old servant of this Jesus, all Christians are. He introduces himself also as an apostle. Now the word apostle means one who is sent. Uh, it is uh, something like the word ambassador. It's a representative who is sent in place of someone else. Someone who's sent on a mission to represent them, an authorised spokesperson. And it's a strange title in some ways because apostle represents humble authority. And you wonder, how do you, those two words go together? How can you be a humble authority? Well, it's humble because you're not representing yourself. You're at the beck and call of your master. You are the slave. You are the servant. Uh, and you have their message to say, his message, not your own. But it's authority as well because you come with the authority of the person you're speaking for. And so to deal with you as the spokesperson is to deal with the one who sent you. And so if you acknowledge Paul, you'll acknowledge Jesus. If you reject Paul, you reject Jesus. If you listen to Paul, you're listening to Jesus. And he's not making that up. He's not got tickets on himself because he was decisively, physically and literally called to that task by Jesus himself in the book of Acts. You can read about it in Acts chapter 9 and it gets repeated a couple of times because it was such a momentous uh, moment in history. See, Paul was on the road to Damascus. Uh, in Syria. He was persecuting Christians. He hated them. He was hunting them down. He was arresting many and having some killed. He could not stand what he thought were the lies and the blasphemies of these Christians who claimed that Jesus, who everyone knew had just been executed, was alive again. And yet when he came face to face with the risen Jesus, uh, full of life, uh, he couldn't help but know the truth and become a follower himself. It was a dramatic conversion from being you know, the arch enemy of Jesus to being his greatest follower. And it was a dramatic moment in history and in God's plans for the world because Jesus didn't just want to turn him around. He had a job for him to do. And he said in Acts 9, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles, that is to the non-Jews, 
and to their kings, right? He will stand before the most important people in the world. He will look them in the eye and also the people of Israel uh, and tell them the message. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. That is, Jesus handpicked Paul not just to be a servant, but to be his apostle, and not just any apostle, because there are a few of them, but the apostle to the nations, to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. Paul was set apart and called to go with Jesus' message as his ambassador to the whole world, Jesus' uh, ambassador at large. And he was sent to the world to proclaim God's message, which is the third thing that Paul says about himself, that he was set apart for the gospel of God. That's an extraordinary phrase. He doesn't preach his own gospel. He preaches God's gospel. Now, the word gospel, I mean, most of us know, you know, it, it means something like good news. Uh, actually, it doesn't mean good news at all. Uh, it just means news. So it depends on what the news says to you, whether it's good or bad, Right. It means an important announcement, a public announcement. It's a pronouncement to the world. Many people put a gospel in the newspaper or on their Facebook page when they're engaged or when they're having a baby. It's a statement. It's a declaration of important news. Although in terms of world importance, a Facebook post about my children or about your children or grandchildren is actually pretty small news. It's important to you and maybe to a few people, but... Uh, but that's a gospel. That's a small gospel. But there are big gospels. There are big announcements. A few years ago, the whole country, and not just ours, but the whole Commonwealth, heard the news that baby George was born to William and Kate. That is big news because this was the birth of our future king. He will be king, presumably. When the election results come out from a federal election, and there's a victory speech, it's a gospel. It's a pronouncement. It's good news if you voted for them, and it's bad news if you hate them, right? But it's an announcement. What is this gospel of God? What is the important announcement that God's got for the world? That he has sent his special ambassador at large into the nations of the world to proclaim. Well, you can see it in verse 2 of this Advent reading. Verse 2, it's the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets, and in particular it concerns his son, Jesus. It's an announcement about Jesus. What about God's son? Well, we're given a glimpse of just how big the message about Jesus is uh, in what looks like a tiny little summary in the next two or three sentences. He says a few things. He says the announcement was something that was planned and promised long beforehand. He says it's a message of Jesus' kingship over the world. And he says it's a message that means there must be change. It demands change. Not just a week of special preparations as if the Queen were coming to town, but radical change in every life from now on. I just want to whip through those three things very quickly. Uh, the first thing says about this gospel was that it was planned or promised beforehand Long beforehand, he was ever sent to speak it. He said, I was set apart for the gospel of God, which God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That is, God pre-promised not just years before or even decades before, but centuries beforehand. 
And it announced this coming of the king many times through various other messengers over the centuries. The prophets whose words make up the Old Testament. That is to say, the gospel is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises that God ever made. That is, Christianity is not a new religion, it's a fulfillment of an old religion. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. What God was preparing and promising way back then, he fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. And even that itself has uh, profound implications. Not the least of which is that uh, God always keeps his promises. He always keeps his promises. Hundreds of years go by. The Jews wonder if the Messiah is ever going to come. Though they go through horrendous suffering, then God acts and his promise is fulfilled. That means God can be trusted. It may look as if God has forgotten his promises at times, but he does not forget and he always keeps his word. And that's at least one fundamental reason to believe his gospel now that it's been announced to the world. Because it's not, it didn't just come out of the blue. Actually, you can see everything that was promised, everything that was predicted, and you see it all fall into place in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's true. It's history. But what is this announcement which took those centuries to fulfill? Well, verse 3, it's the gospel regarding the kingship of God's son. That's what the gospel's about. The son of God now reigns as the king. That's what it's about. That's who it is about. That is, the gospel is not first and foremost about you. And it's not first and foremost about me. The gospel is not about how God wants to meet all my desires. It's not about self-fulfillment. It's not even about how you can find true spirituality. Now, it says something about all of those things and it impacts on them. But first and foremost, the gospel is not about those things. It's a message about God's son. And specifically, it is the official announcement that he has been enthroned as the king. Because if we knew our Old Testaments, we'd know that the son of God is actually a title of God's king who would come to reign, right? It's not, it's not a statement of Jesus' divinity, although he is divine, he is God the Son, but the Son of God is a title of the king of Israel, right? Solomon was the son of God. Rehoboam, the jerk that he was, is the son of God because he had the position, right? Um, the Son of God is a title of God's King, who, and, and specifically the Son of God was the one who would come and rule over the nation of Israel, but not only Israel, over the entire universe, and not just do it for the number of years of his life, but would do it forever, an eternal reign over all peoples. That's what God promised in the first reading that we had from 2 Samuel 7. Uh, the prophet Nathan came to the king of Israel at the time, King David, and he promised David that his son would always sit on his throne ruling over David's people. And, and it becomes one of these great themes of the Old Testament. And you see you know, David's son's coming. It's, it's in all the Psalms, Psalm 2, Psalm 89, Psalm 110, Psalm 132. You can find it in the prophets who, who went on for years afterwards, Isaiah chapter 11, Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 34, Ezekiel 37 and so on. 
Over and over and over again in the Old Testament, the prophets say that the son of David is coming. And so we're supposed to be looking for the real son of David, who's also going to be the real son of God. It's incredibly important, therefore, that Jesus was in the line of David, because it was only a son of David who could fulfill God's promise. But it's not just about human connections back to the throne of Israel and the great King David. Because furthermore, through the spirit of holiness we read here, he was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. There are many sons of David, some who ruled, some who didn't, some were good, some were bad, some were disastrous. But none of them were the son of God in power. None of them were the son of God raised from the dead. You know, they all lived and they reigned for a few years and then they died and they're all buried with their fathers. If you read through 1, 2 Kings, 1, 2 Samuel, 1, 2 Chronicles, that's the way they all the reigns end. He died and went to be with his fathers, right? The expectation was that the real son of God would come in power and he wouldn't come in the power of armies. He wouldn't come by political will. He would come in power by resurrection, The Old Testament prophets predicted that Jesus Christ would come to his power by rising from the dead. And that's what the gospel is about. It's the declaration that Jesus is the son of God in power. That Jesus, the man descended from David, has conquered death and he reigns as God's eternal king. And so Paul summarizes the message at the end of verse 4 there. He says, what's the message? Jesus Christ, our Lord by his fulfilment of God's promises, by his being a descendant of David, by his resurrection from the dead, he is the Lord. He is the Lord of all. He is the Lord not only of the living who are in the world today, he is the Lord of the dead. He is the Lord not only of this age, he is the Lord of the next age. He is the Lord not only of this world, he is the Lord of the world to come. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And so he is the ruler of all nations everywhere for all time. Now, the other nations don't necessarily want to follow him, do they? Our own nation doesn't particularly want to follow him. The ancient nations were happy to follow the Baals or the Greek gods or the Roman gods or the spirits of the ancestors. Today, the nations don't want to follow him. They want to follow Muhammad. They want to follow Buddha. They want to follow Confucius or Krishna. Some of them just want to follow Karl Marx. But Jesus is their Lord and God, whether they want him to be or not, whether they want to follow him or not. Because if Jesus has risen from the dead, he has received all glory and power and authority to rule all nations for all times. He is the judge of all people everywhere. He doesn't rise from the dead to the Israeli portfolio in God's government. He didn't rise from the dead to become the tourism minister, right? He didn't rise from the dead to become the mayor of Campbelltown, you know, or councillor Gilholm or anything like that. He rises to be the king of all kings, the lord of all lords, the ruler of all peoples. It's for all people to know, therefore, that there is a man who is king in heaven, Jesus Christ our Lord. 
But it's not enough just to know that, to acknowledge that. There's a, there's a personal implication, isn't there, for every person, every member of every nation of the entire world, whether they're from T- Tajikistan or Turkey, whether they're from Australia or Austria, whether they're from uh, India, Indonesia or from Ingleburn. Uh, and the implication is in verse 5. Through him and for his name's sake we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. What is the implication of Jesus being this king of all? We've got to trust him and we've got to obey him. And that's what Paul was sent to call people to do, to announce the arrival of God's king in power and to call people to bow the knee to this king, to swear fealty to him, to give their lives to him. There has been a regime change in the universe and therefore there has to be a regime change in my life. Do you believe Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God in all power and authority ruling the universe? Do you believe that? Because if that's who Jesus is, Things have to change. You know, if you say, gee, that's interesting, oh, thanks for telling me, oh, nice to know. You know. And then you walk away, you don't really believe it, do you? You're rejecting it. Because if you really believe that Jesus is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, then the fact that the Queen might turn up in Ingleburn in a couple of days' time for Christmas and come to church here is nothing compared to the fact that Jesus is here today. And he is her king. You might think her turning up here would create changes around here, albeit temporarily the king of kings has arrived. And so things have to change and change permanently. So I've got three questions that you might want to mull over. I don't know if you're coming to uh, our Christmas services or you've got family things on that you're disappearing off to. Maybe you've got friends and family who are affected by the fires and you're going to pitch a hand or they're coming to stay your place um, three questions to ponder over this christmas period while you're feasting on your turkey number one is he your lord frankly he is whether you acknowledge it or not because he's everyone's lord like it or not but the answer sometimes is a no in the sense that you know i, I maybe haven't bowed the knee to him or Uh, sworn fealty and trust to him and so in reality if that's the case i'm still in rebellion against him don't be like that friends he died to pay for you that you might be forgiven that you might be received back into his kingdom and family he's risen from the dead and he's in control not only of this life but the life to come and one day you are going to meet him But you need to meet him before that enforced appointment comes in your death. Don't leave it till you die to meet him because then it'll be too late. Because he'll say, away from me. I never knew you. Meet him now in this life that you might rejoice when you do meet him in that lifetime rather than exist in fear and horror. Is he your Lord? Number two. Are you committed to him being the Lord over every part of your life? Because he doesn't just want some of you. 
He's not interested in token assent. He's not the kind of king that lives in a palace overseas and really wants nothing to do with you and, you know, someone has to inform him that it's your 100th birthday so he can write you a card, you know. Uh, He doesn't want the back seat in your car. He wants to be the driver. He doesn't want to live in the granny flat. He wants the main bedroom. Um, He doesn't want to be entertained in the foyer with a cup of tea. He wants the whole house, right? He's after your life. He wants the reins. Is there some part of your life that you're holding out on him, you know, uh, that you just think, you can have anything but that bit? Well, let him have that bit too. All of you, such that what he says goes, such that he doesn't have to fight you for control of your actions and decisions, so that when he speaks in his word, you respond with gladness and gratitude, knowing that he loves you so much, trusting that his rule is for the best, that he knows what he's talking about, he knows what he's doing. Because Jesus, as John Piper, the American preacher, likes to put it, Jesus is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. Question three, are you committed to him being the king over all people? Because he's not just the king of those who come to this church. He's not just the king of those who go to church generally. He's the king overall. And we call the whole world, every person in every nation, in every age to account. (coughs) And it ought to concern us that so many people around our world, so many people in our city, so many people in our own community and even in our own lives do not know him and have not bowed the knee to him. It should concern us for their sake and it should concern us for his glory. For coming to him is the only way to receive grace and peace from God. I reckon the people who are generally not concerned for the lost are generally part of the lost themselves. The next few days with Christmas on our doorstep is one of the easiest and greatest opportunities you'll have to share the good news, or the announcement anyway, with people and invite them to come along, uh, share with you, church, or in your family celebrations uh, and reflect on his lordship that he's come to save. Reflect on his incredible grace and mercy and the incredible power that he wields as the judge and lord of all, that they might give their lives to him. And I don't know if you're back for the next few days, but I hope that whatever the Christmas celebrations you are gathering this year, whether it's here over the next few days or uh, with family and friends, that it's a really blessed one, Um, particularly that uh, it's a time of recommittal to him as Lord of your life and of sharing with others that he's the Lord of their life too. Father, thank you for Christmas and we thank you for the chance to stop and reflect on your kingship We thank you that Jesus is Lord, that nothing can overthrow him, that he has broken the bonds of sin and the devil and death itself, that there is life in him, that his rule is good. And we pray, please, for our broken world that you might have mercy on it and bring many to repentance and the obedience that comes from faith. Amen.